welcome to the 31st episode of the Joshua Young Podcast. Today, I have another incredible guest on my show, Bethany Young. Welcome to the show, Bethany. Hey, thanks, Joshua. You're so welcome. I'm glad you got to come back for a part two or part one. Bethany was the, the fourth episode in the Joshua Young series, and it was fantastic. We dove into what she's doing with Yellow Cat and Love Trades, two companies in which she is the um, president and co-owner of, and got to learn a lot about what those two are. In this episode, I'll try not to dive into as many details of what those operations look like, but kind of how it differentiates uh, itself from other pieces in the industry, other companies and similar industries. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Bethany is not only an incredible business leader, but she's also my older adopted sister. So I appreciate you being willing to come on and discuss both uh, personal and business matters with me. Of course, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me as a guest on your show. You're so welcome. So to dive into it, uh, Yellow Cat and Love Trades, as far as I understand, takes a personnel or a behavior test and uses that to help both industries and individuals find more meaningful work. I'm curious, what are the differentiating factors that uh, Love Trades and Yellow Cat has between other tests in the market, like the Meyer-Briggs psychology test, or even like the Enneagram personality test? Mm, great question. And that's one that comes up quite a bit when we talk about the love trades or the yellow cat assessment. So we call that the cat tool and it's, or I guess the, the cat technology, it's the cultural assessment tool is where we get cat from. And what we get to learn through that assessment process, or like you said, it's core behaviors and we can change behavior. It's really hard to change your personality. And so the assessments that you just referenced have a, so much value in the marketplace, but they, I mean, it's like saying everything is a fruit, but there's apples and there's oranges and there's bananas and, and all of that. And so in this case, what the, the cat technology does is it looks at these core behaviors that we can then kind of see where we land on a continuum and then make adjustments from there. One thing I also really like about it is that um, as compared to other assessment tools, this one is really hard to guess the right answer. And I like our students, ourselves, the people around us are really, really savvy when it comes to knowing what the right answer could be and should be. And so if I'm taking um, some of like the competing assessment tools and I know that it is going to help get me a really nurturing job, then of course I'm going to answer in that space and maybe not answer honestly. With the cat tool, you're just answering one question, which is how do you act most of the time usually? And when you're answering that, even if you're like, oh, I, I'm more like joyful or bubbly, on the back end, it still knows. Like it's still able to like pull out the, the honest responses to that answer. So I feel like that was a really long question or answer to your really simple question. But that's, I think, the pieces that I find to be most insightful and differentiate between the other tools out there. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, when you're looking at behaviors compared to personalities, behaviors are something that I think as individuals, we're much more comfortable with, um, where our personalities are something that we want to change. We want to have the correct personality that is attractive to the people around us, where our behaviors were just like, okay, I'm fine just being who I am. Good point. That's a good point. There's some that are, you know, when they're overdone or overstimulated, they can be like stressful to the people around us. And that's where 
you see like someone that has like really high dominance can be a very successful leader and really get a lot done, very driven. But that in hyper drive tends to be someone who's arrogant and doesn't listen to alternative opinions, interrupts a lot, like doesn't have patience for the process. And so when we know that, when we're informed about things like that, then we can say like, okay, is that the person I want to be? And if not, here's some strategies that I can do or implement in order to influence that really dominant, potentially dominant behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so with one of the, uh, with your test, you get 21 different metrics. Some people only receive five of those metrics on kind of what are the, the top, uh, top five. And that's very different than a lot of other tests. Um, considering the metrics in which you do try and tease out of people. Um, those are everything from dominance to self-confidence, self-control, mentoring, while other, you know, uh, Meyer-Briggs is more introverted, extroverted. It's more just to, are you this or are you that? And as you said, you can take these metrics and learn if you actually want to improve on one of them. I know for myself, I took the test uh, for the first time back June in 2020 and noticed that I had a low self-confidence score, which wasn't something that I liked. I think it was accurate from where I took it, but I also saw that my, it gave me suggestions on how I could improve it and six months later was able to retake the test and see a, an improved confidence score, which I did think reflected in my life at that time. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I find it, I find the idea of just like looking at my test and being like, okay, well, is this, am I okay with this? Uh, I saw that I had like a low dominance score and I'm like, oh, I'm going to lean into this. Like that, that's unusual, I would say for uh, a man, especially in a, a, a relationship. Usually people are trying to make you into this like alpha male and I'm like, eh. Let's, uh, let's see what uh, low-dominant leadership looks like. And it's worked out well. <laughs> Since you've uh, been able to dive into learning more about these different metrics, I'm curious, how has your mind changed through some of these? And uh, uh, one in particular I'm looking at is curiosity. Since diving into Love Trades and Yellow Cat, how has your thoughts on curiosity for individuals changed? Mm, good question. Well, and to, to kind of hit your first question, I think we'll give a good segue into the next one about curiosity. There are, like you said, the 21 measures. And what's been really neat to see happen as I've learned more and more, and I've probably been exposed and like rolled up my sleeves and dove into maybe a thousand assessments total, uh, maybe 1200. And when doing that, we can kind of start to see your themes. So one thing that we know is like human beings are extremely predictable. We all try to be uh, very unique and, and we certainly have our tendency to do that, but the behavior of people is predictable. So if there's one thing you can depend on, know that you can usually predict behavior. And so with that in mind, when looking at all of these assessments and you're looking at 21 different results for each person, there's kind of starts to become, there are these clusters that start to form. And there's certain ones that like, I think about them as stars. You've got your shooting star, your rock star. I mean, you have like this, the steady star that's always just going to lay be so dependable. There's the operational person, there's the dreamer, there's the visionary. And so there's some that are um, the, the personality type, the behavior set, the energy that comes with it as someone who's like very low in self-control, very high in free spirit, high in self-confidence, and potentially like on the higher end of change. I mean, that is a really, really fun person that is borderline, like a complete disaster. 
And I say it that way intentionally because usually that person as they get older have figured out the tools that they need in order to keep that in check. To not make like really impulsive decisions or to make decisions that like don't have some thought behind it. But the 19 year old, the 20 year old, the high schooler that has that behavior set is the person that's just so full of creativity and curiosity and wants to dive in and explore. And at times that can be like, I mean, they can make some really bad decisions at that time just because they're 19. They haven't gone through the life experiences to know like, okay, this like overindulgence in this particular behavior has some really serious consequences on the other side. So those are some of some of the things, I guess, looking at all these assessments that I've really learned about people is that, yes, we know that people are predictable. We also know that, like, certain clusters of behaviors create some really interesting personas. So to get to your next question about curiosity, what has made me really curious is, like, if we know, if we get this kind of, like, data and this insight... What does that mean for like, risk factors throughout life? Like, so if it's someone who, say, is 14, 15, 16 years old, and we see like a really high self-critical score, a really low self-confidence score, like those are things that like immediately flag to me that this person needs some additional resources to help learn how to make good decisions or how to reach out and how to ask for help and then to the people on the periphery of that individual, like say the mentor, the coach, the teacher, the friend, the parent, like what do we need to know? Like what do we need to do in order to help that person who presents? And if we know that someone with low self-confidence and high criticality, say we don't have the answers to their assessment right in front of us, but can we start to notice certain measures early on so that just out and about we can be the best influence for that person and the best guide and nurture them the best way possible. That's what's kind of led me down this path of curiosity because I, at the end of the day, all of this work that we're all doing is to help people live their best life possible. So not even knowing what their assessment result looks like, are there certain ways that we live that behavior and, and the other, like, more aware people can kind of come around that person and help them are some of the things that are, are driving my curiosity behind that assessment right now. Mm -hmm. That's real good. Uh, I love the fact that you've dove so much into this that you get to see unique groups uh, be created. Your comment of someone who is uh, low, low confidence, but high self-critical. It's like, yeah, there is, if you can pull that out of someone, there's an obvious direction on what you can do to that person that could have a large impact on the betterment of their life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What out of your metrics, uh, is your favorite one to dive into with other people? Oh, do I have to pick just one? No, or it could be a group, as you said. It could sure. be, you know, looking at two. I think that the two that I am most fascinated by, I just love getting involved with, is creativity and aggression. So I, I feel like aggression is this uh, now, like, fancy four-letter word. It just has a lot more letters in it. And with what aggression has really like started to play out and kind of evolve into is competition. And there's a lot of people that are like, Oh, I'm very, very passive at home or say my 5 PM to 8 AM. But once I show up and put my hand on the door at work from 8 AM to 5 PM, I'm very competitive and very aggressive. And when we think of aggression, I think by design, we've kind of, we've adjusted, we've shifted that original definition of aggression because now I think aggression is like, you know, very forceful and invasive and potentially like physically uh, like bullying. And really what the intent of the word aggression in this uh, context is that it's much more competitive. It's like 
very, very driven. It's the desire to see something all the way through and not just to like check the box that it's done, but to be like very successful in that space, whatever that definition of success would look like for that particular thing. And so to see like aggression put up against this space of creativity, and these seem to be some of the most like philosophical, interesting, um, well-spoken, articulate people that have very high measures in both of those spaces, these are the individuals that I love having conversations with because I think about those conversations day after day after day, and that feeds me. So when I see a score like that, I'm like, oh, I want to meet this person <laughs> because I don't necessarily see all of these people that uh, we get the scores for. And then when I say the creativity aspect of it, what I am leaning into in that space is that Someone who is creative doesn't necessarily mean artistically creative. It's the person that can see opportunity amongst, you know, all of these different barriers. It's someone that's willing to take risks, which really challenges me and inspires me. I would say that maybe I'm a little bit more artistically creative than, um, like, mentally creative. And it inspires me to think through those opportunities. Someone told me years ago in order to expect or um, receive or anticipate great reward, you have to be willing to take great risk. You can't get one without the other. And I'm always like, yeah, I want that great reward. And I kind of forget that I also have to like keep in the corner of my eye, the desire to have like the, the, uh, the strength to take great risk. So even though I was told that 15 years ago, it's something that, shows up in my life every single day. So those are like two of the personas that I like, or the behaviors into one persona that I really, really enjoy diving into. Those are fun. Uh, I really enjoy your comment on a differentiation between uh, creativity of one being mental and one being artistic. It's uh, cool that you say you're much more artistic in your creativity where I would say for myself, I ended up with a high creative score and it confused me because I'm not artistically creative. I've tried drawing, I've tried going down artistic and it's just not there. But mentally, I feel like I can be extremely creative and come up with tons of different ideas as you've been the subject of for the past 12 months. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, and I would totally agree. I see that in you all the time. Mm-hmm. So one of my creative ideas that I had was uh, to get you to host a podcast. Um, it was your birthday last year, and I thought, I'm like, all right, I would like to send you some birthday gift, but like, what could I give you? I'm like, well, I don't know of anything you actually need physically. So I'm like, I'll give you an idea. <laughs> and I sent you... Well, it worked out. I sent her this idea. I'm like, I think you should host a podcast. I think you know you're very articulate. You ask good questions, and I think that would be great to brand both Love Trades and Yellow Cat. And you're like, Yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, Oh, we okay? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, since February, you've been launching a weekly podcast. <clears throat> And are up to eight episodes right now with new ones being launched every single week. And I'd like to dive into what have been kind of the, the micro benefits of starting a podcast in this new day and age. Oh, gosh, the benefits of a podcast. Like, talk about jumping into some risk. Like, that definitely took me outside of my comfort zone. Only because it was a new thing. But... Like the interesting thing going back to human behavior is that like we're predictable and the things that I've done in the past, it was like, well, there's, I, I definitely have the resources, like the experience that is going to be needed to be successful in this podcast space. Like I've done that. I just need to now apply that in a new way. So here we are charting new territory, at least for me in this podcast space. And the, I mean, there's so like, this is high functioning, like high level processing that has to work together in order to make this thing 
come to life. And I even, you know, your first, your first one, you're always like, Ooh, I can do that better. And then you like, you know, you do your first one and you're like, that's great. And I'm sure in like a couple years, assuming that we continue doing this, we'll look back and we'll be like, remember that first one? Like how there was like awkward silence and the poor guest is like, I don't know. Are you asking a question? Are you waiting for me to just intuitively answer something that you didn't actually ask? So I, I do find all of this to iterate at an exponential rate with every single podcast episode that we do. So that has been, uh, you said a micro benefit, but that is like huge benefit. Uh, another thing that like to go back to what I mentioned, I said processing high level processing is that the, like the recent, the mental resources that one must employ in order to make this work is that, you ask a question, you listen to an answer, you're formulating a response that has something to do with that answer. While you formulate that response, you're also like teeing yourself up for a next question that isn't just like, well, let's change gears and like talk about this. And now let's change gears and talk about what you just said a second ago, because I do have a follow-up question. And so to like scaffold a conversation has been really insightful to me like that is hard work but what it's also done kind of to that micro side is it has definitely made me a but much better writer because I feel like you know before February so that almost seems like an eternity ago but say six months ago in my writing I did not connect like this I didn't have this conscious and cohesive series of thought unfolding on, on the page and my writing kind of looked like alphabet soup and it was just like this mess. And now after working through this podcast, like hearing something come out or having something come out of my mouth, hearing it, processing it, doing something with it on the fly has certainly made me a much better writer. And I've noticed that my writing has been buttoned up and that cohesive theory of, or a series of thoughts follows a pattern that would make sense to a reader. So I, I feel too, like one more thing to add to that is that in a podcasting and writing, listening, whatever, like we're not doing this for ourselves. And if we are, we're, I would say with confidence, like we're doing it for the wrong reason. What we're doing is we're doing all of this for our listener. And if our listener wouldn't find it interesting, why would we? And so if I look at some of my headlines that I write or the titles or the body or the guests that I bring on, I'm like, if I wouldn't want to have a conversation with that person or read that writing, like, why am I doing it? And of course, at first you start and you're like, well, it's mine. It's my baby. It's my work. Like I've just had this interview or I've written this article. Of course it's great. And that's not always the case. And so when we can kind of like push aside the ego and say like, okay, I'm, I'm asking someone to spend an hour of their time and listening to a podcast, 10 minutes of their time and reading an article, like am I honoring their time? So it's made me think about several things at the micro level, one being writing. And then the second one being like, how, how respectful of someone's time am I being by putting this out there in the world? Yes. Yes, a hundred percent. To be able to put it out, to have someone listen to your podcast, like the fact that you're in their ears for up to 60 minutes is an extremely intimate place to be. And you have to hold that as a high value, as a high privilege. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I would agree. It is also a, takes a ton of cognitive effort in order to process how to host well. Yes. Yes. I think about it as like cognitive gymnastics. Like there's so much going on and you're just like, an hour goes by and you're like, whoo, thank I stuck that landing. <laughs> exactly. It's cool to see how it's uh, followed uh, back to your writing. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I know that uh, even communicating with my partner, Scotty, I'm like, oh, I'm better at making eye contact with you. I'm better at thinking through my words a little bit more, uh, simply from doing so many podcasts. 
I would expect. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the point of iteration, I think, is worth mentioning again, as you said. It's like you don't know what you don't know starting out, but as you continue to do it, as you continue to produce, the amount of quality that you can improve on is pretty dramatic from one episode to the next. What benefits do you see the podcast having in the future, kind of in the, the macro? Mm, well, I, I mean, I, the, the hope, the goal, and I do feel like we are moving the needle toward that, is to start influencing these conversations about the importance of trades that uh, trade is not a dirty word, even though it might be a dirty job, that we have so much opportunity to really share amazing stories about what's happening in the trades. Like none of us have, are where we are like this moment in time. And I, and I say that within our day, not in like our global context of our life that we've lived. But today, like we're not where we are today without having massive influence from trades we don't we don't grow our own food we don't provide our own energy we're not heating our homes with firewood that we've got out and cut down from the tree that we planted like we're that's not the world we live in anymore and so we're heavily reliant on the trades and as we look at kind of these bills that are being passed in congress or even on the floor for consideration like one of the dominoes in all of this is like, what is the trade infrastructure behind these bills? Like there's a two to four trillion dollar infrastructure bill that's being discussed right now. And someone in the trades, like say a graduate from biotech, a graduate from uh, a welding program, a graduate from a construction trade program. Like these are trades that are, these are the people that are going to make that infrastructure bill happen. And so if we are throwing a $4 trillion infrastructure bill out there, and that's looking at roadways, bridges, energy sources, whether that's wind, electric, you know, however that looks, but it's these graduates that are coming out of these trade programs that are going to make that trillion dollar bill happen. And so if we don't have those people in the pipeline, then it doesn't matter how much money we put into that actual bill. It'll never get done if we don't have the people that can actually do the work. And so one of the, the hopes that I have of the Love Trades podcast is we start encouraging people that are young today to think about how they can fit into that sense of community at the national level and create these roadways, these bridges, this energy that we're all going to so desperately need. When we hear governors or mayors or even uh, presidents of companies or the, the country say like we're going all of our vehicles are going to be carbon neutral by x date or they're all going to be electric by x date it's like well do we have the technicians that can work on those cars that are going to be on the roadway that are going to make sure you're safe do we have that pipeline i mean our car manufacturers can innovate all day long and create these vehicles that are on the roadway, but if they need service, like what does that look like on the back end? And then I think at, at the personal level with Love Trades podcast, it's like, well, what is now Love Trades' responsibility in our part in making sure that, you know, by year 2050, we have all electric cars or or no gas-driven cars, or you know whatever they're kind of throwing out there, there's a massive trickle-down effect. And right now, we don't have those programs in our country that are teaching people how to service those vehicles. And that just as an aside, like those those technicians aren't going to be the ones that have greasy fingernails because they'll be sitting their their shop is going to be a computer lab essentially because everything is going to be software driven. And so like, even how does our, the way that we're training automotive technicians, like that infrastructure, like that actual like classroom space doesn't exist quite yet. So those are some of the things that 
uh, weigh heavy on my heart when I think about the impact of Love Trades podcast. Like, there's something too, and it's fun sharing stories about people who are in the trades. Like, that's that's fun. I love it. I've met amazing people that I'll probably know for the rest of my life through this process. But on the like the advocacy level, the policy level, like that's something that's uncharted territory that we really have to start having an honest conversation about. Wow. The emotion that you talk about, the responsibility that you take on really comes through. Oh, thank That's you. incredible. Yeah. I, I think that is cool that you are willing to see such a broken infrastructure as you look forward and then saying like, okay, you can do something about this and you are doing something about it. So well done. Hey, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been an extremely fun privilege to be a part of seeing what you've created. Uh, I've gotten benefits from just using the test in my own life, but then also being able to direct people to say like, hey, there's a lot more out there than a four-year degree, and it might make you a lot happier because you might be doing something you enjoy. And Love Trades has a lot of resources built up to help you explore what those options could be. Mm, that's so good to hear. Thank you. I hope on just like a superficial level, the story that we hear of people saying like, I never knew. And then like fill in the blank, like that job existed or those opportunities were there or that I could have invested $30,000 in nine months and come out making $30 an hour versus, you know, like for myself, I, I gave six years to my education, which I, I don't regret, but I think had I, had I known differently, I definitely would have changed. Mm. I would probably be a heavy equipment operator or I would own a construction company. Like that's probably what I would be doing. I'm not going to start doing that now, but that's probably what I would be doing. <laughs> Why do you think that? Uh, that I would be doing that? Yeah. Oh, like I'm absolutely fascinated by heavy equipment. And that's like my first thing that I want to get into is like a piece of heavy equipment. If we have it at the office, um, which does happen time to time, I got to once like drive one of those massive like roller machines. I don't even know, but it like compacts round underneath you and it, the pivot point is in the center of the machine. So it's like learning how to drive for the first, you know, like if you've ever put your handlebars on backwards on your bicycle and you turn left and the car or the bike goes right. Like that kind of thing. Like that's what this was like driving it. And so it took like every ounce of like my cognitive uh, capacity to operate this thing and then make sure, you know, like you just like kept it together. It's like, don't get too distracted that, you know, you like bust through the house because you don't stop in time and you know, all of those different things. So I, it was fascinating. Like there's nothing better than like being out there getting really dirty and cruising around in heavy equipment. It's one of my favorite things. My gosh, it does sound great. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you have a little bit of advantage on one of those rollers. Is maybe they don't go more than like three miles an hour. Is that right? That is, yeah, that, they're <laughs> slow. But you want to keep your mind about you because you could move into your home real fast at three miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, something to watch out. Beth behind the wheel of heavy machinery. Maybe you've got it. Well, I'm going to use uh, the transition of you talking about hosting a podcast and trying to cognitively get the infant the scaffolding ready to transition from one to the other. And I don't know how to do that very well for this next part of my show. So <laughs> throwing that straight out. But I will use you talking about like, if you're not excited about having the conversation that you're going to be sit down and having, then that's going to bleed through to your guests. And if you don't feel like that's valuable for your listeners, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And I started reflecting on that for me of like, you're the 31st podcast that I've done. And I'm looking at all of these different podcasts that I've created. I'm like, man, some of them are extremely invigorating and give me a lot of energy. And others are a little bit more draining for me to produce. And I saw that like the ones that I really enjoyed doing had this kind of like vulnerability element to it, where people were talking about, you know, like coming out as, you know, uh, 
different sexuality than they anticipated to their fathers on the show. Um, people talking about uh, dealing with mental health issues in the food and beverage industry. And those are the ones I'm like, oh man, I really enjoy this. So I'm starting to structure my podcast. So half of it begins with things that are people are doing for 80% of their time. What does their day-to-day look like? What's on their head? But then uh, these other parts of the um, podcast, I'm calling the uh, conversations that we don't talk about. And uh, so for the first, uh, I'm excited to have uh, my actually not adopted sister, Beth Young. Uh, for those of you who aren't watching the live, it's April 1st. So that was a little April Fool's joke for you. Um, <laughs> yes, very happy to have her in my life always. Um, and uh, I asked Beth, I'm like, hey, so here's a topic I want to breach. And she was willing to do so. And it's the fact that seven years ago, our mother passed. And uh, I personally have found walking through um, the passing of a parent and specifically a mother to be kind of a chip on the shoulder that has given me probably the most leverage and positive influence in my entire life. And I'll probably dive into a little bit more of that uh, later. But for you, Beth, I'd like to ask you, what has the passing of mom, what are the benefits that you've received from walking through that process? Well, it's a good question. And I appreciate that you're willing to create space that will live on forever um, in all of our data collection that we're doing in this country, in this world, to talk about vulnerability and to talk about the conversations that we're not comfortable having because that's how we're going to grow and that's how we'll eventually like survive all of this stuff that's happening uh, in our world right now. So thank you for bringing up a vulnerable question. I appreciate that. When I think about like the process of losing a parent, like you said, losing, especially like the female person in our world and our life and what that means to me, there's a couple things that uh, specifically being in like the sense of a mom I have a better relationship with my mom today than I did for the 30 years before, um, you know, when she was alive. Like, she and I were never really all that close, and I don't know, I'm fascinated with birth order, and that's a different conversation for a different day altogether. But being the oldest, I don't know if there was, like, kind of this um, sense of independence that was taken from her because she had... me because I showed up. And so that's not like something I carry around, um, worried about or like owning, but I wonder if there was like kind of that independence was taken from her because all of a sudden I showed up. So today she'd have a great relationship because there's no expectation and there's no disappointment on both ends. And so I, I do find that to be rather insightful. And as a result, I'm learning a lot about her and our relationship as I as I grow up, because I think it's really important that I don't put on project onto other people, a sense of uh, lost independence because they arrived. And I think I would have only learned that from her. And I don't know. And I, I am putting words in her mouth. So I don't know if that was necessarily the case, but it's something I definitely through her I've learned and through losing her, I've learned another thing that I've really come to, uh, embrace and understand is how through death is how important it is to live. And what I mean by that is like every day we're given an opportunity, a brand new opportunity to say like, are you going to show up in your world for yourself today? And are you going to show up for the people around you? And what does that mean? For me, it's always been kind of easy to send a text or to, um, write a post-it note like, oh, by the way, check in with this person at this time, at this day, because this is happening to them. And then all of a sudden you get a text from a really close friend that's like, that trip that we've been putting off, I can actually take now. And it's like, well, that's cool, but why? And they're like, I just lost my job. And you're like, oh, okay. So you pick up the phone and you call it and you're like, does that trip need to happen this weekend? And and I think that through death, one of the greatest lessons I have learned is how extremely important it is to show up 
And it's really easy to let a lot of time go by before we show up. But we get a new chance at that every single day. And I know through losing mom and, you know, maybe it might be fair for a listener or even myself to say like, well, did I ever really have her if I never had a great relationship with her? So that's also um, something I'll think through. But through kind of her passing, I definitely realized like the value and like the responsibility we have to the world around us and to ourselves to show up. Mm -hmm. Well, beautiful thoughts. Thanks for being vulnerable. Thanks for expressing your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I think that one of the main ways that humans learn is through contrast. And if we don't, for me, like I had a few close friends pass before mom and it still didn't hit as hard as when mom did pass. And I think I started to unfold and learn more about our relationship uh, about two years after her passing. That's when things actually started taking off. And uh, it seems like similar to you, it surprised me to see how the relationship continued to unfold even after death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. I think that like there's these processes of grieving and mourning and like, I feel like our, our society has always just told us to like be happy. And then they're like, Oh, but when something bad happens, like give yourself time to grieve. And it's like, but there's no resources in like my cognitive library to say like, here's how I grieve or here's how I mourn. And I feel like, like I'm a deeply spiritual person, but I feel like the, the universe and God and, and whatever, you know, we kind of embody that as asks us and says to us, like, have some time to complain. Like, it's okay to say like, this stinks and I'm not okay with it. And like, just to make it like real right now, like I hate wearing masks because I miss seeing people's faces and smiles. I understand why we have to, that's okay. But I, I miss it. Like, yeah, I want to complain about that for a little bit. Like I miss, I miss seeing my friends. I miss getting together with people and I'm not okay with that, but I understand why we have to do it. So when I think about like, okay, it took us like a couple years to like, maybe that grief shows up in a couple years, but not in a necessarily a bad place. Like we got to learn about a new person and we get to experience a relationship with a new person that might not even physically be here. One of the things that's given me a lot of comfort is that like, I personally am strong as a mountain or strong as whatever, you know, we, we want to say, it's my hurt that's fragile, but it's not me that's fragile. Mm. And so when I think about losing a parent and the relationship that you had with her, the relationship that other relatives or other people in our world had with her, it's like, it's just like, I'm strong. I can handle this. And there's days that the hurt piece is fragile, but that doesn't mean I'm fragile. Sure. We always try and disassociate, uh, the thing that can bring us down from who we think we are. Yeah, we do. It's probably not healthy. <laughs> no. I mean, I think that the reality is once we kind of let our walls down and we can absorb that hurt, then we can learn from it. But as soon as we disassociate from it, then we're not processing it. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I greatly appreciate your vulnerability and your thoughts, Beth. Thank you. Mm-hmm. To uh, end on a lighter note, we're going to play a game of overrated and underrated. Okay? Oh, okay. Okay. First topic: Peloton. Peloton, the company. Mm-hmm. Bike? The bike company. Overrated. Why? So I am a Nordic track girl. And the reason is that uh, after a lot of research, the Nordic track bike automatically inclines or declines, where the Peloton does not. 
And so, you know, if you really want to like bike, like you would be on the road, which I realize is not everyone's goal. It is my goal. Then, uh, it absolutely is necessary to have the Nordic track bike and the iFit tools behind it. Mm. Incredible technology. What's the advantage of Peloton then? If it doesn't incline and decline. It's getting people to exercise. I mean, I think that's, I think that's great. And I think Peloton has done a, an underrated job. I think they've done a fabulous job in marketing. There's, I, although I am on a Nordic Trek bike at least several hours every day, if I can't be outside. And in that, uh, Nordic Trek is my grandfather's brand. Peloton is my generation's brand. Although I think Nordic Track has a better product, Peloton has done a dynamite job marketing. And so, you know, maybe they could use a little uh, marketing and a little uh, R&D and come together. And I'm sure someone will, there will be company next that comes out that has done both of those things. But um, at this time, I'd say the bike product of Peloton is underrated. All right. Good to know. Overrated. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, well, we have a bright future to look forward to then when someone does mesh the two. Right? Yeah. All right. Air fryer. Overrated? Underrated? Oh, underrated. That's my favorite thing. I air fry everything. So people, everyone, every household, you need to have a smoke detector and you need to have an air fryer. That should be two code. <laughs> That's great. Hopefully we get to see that uh, combo pack in the store. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last one. Burning Man. Oh, I can't wait to go. So I think it's underrated. Although it's probably just right because I don't think it's an environment for everyone to go to. But I have my plan. I have my, my product that I'm going to provide to the community as a whole. I'm... Uh, my girlfriend, Brenda, and I have spent a lot of time researching this and figuring out exactly how we're going to do this and be successful and, like, how much fun it's going to be and who gets to be on the proverbial bus with us, which I think it's just going to be the her and I. But we, we cannot wait to go. Wow. Incredible. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Burning Man is, a like, a, a week to two week long festival in the California or Nevada desert, one of the two. Nevada okay. desert. And there's no money. And so you have to create something to provide. Uh, it says, like, you have that. Um, do you want to share? What you're... And it's also hyper-artistic. I, like, hyper. I think that's key to, to Burning Man versus, like, any just, like, self-made community that's there for the betterment. Um, I'm sure there's a significant amount of shenanigans that go on. But um, our solution was that we would need to provide snow cones. And as a result of all of these, uh, you know, boutique cooler companies coming out that can keep ice cold for an eternity, we now have all of the resources and it's a matter of using ice, using water in a new way. And wow. it's quite warm in that desert because it happens like what, like the first part of August or like middle part of August or something like that. So it's, it's hot. So we figure, you know, to really support the community, People might need a little refreshing break and we will have snow cones. That's really brilliant. Well done. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Beth, but my first introduction to Burning Man was because of you. Oh, really? How so? I think you sent me like a, a magazine or an article on it and it had the like 30 foot man uh, made out of wood that they created right before they burned. This was in like, man, I was 13 or so. So I was okay. like, this was years ago. And uh, yeah, you're just like this incredible festival. I'm like crazy, crazy Beth. And now I'm like all about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how it comes full circle. Oh, I have to give your audience like a little tidbit to you because you've been able to expose tidbits of me. So when I was uh, 20 years old, I pierced my nose. There's just a tiny little stud in my nose. And when Josh saw that, he was beyond disgusted. And it's like, I am embarrassed to introduce you to any of my friends now because of that. And guess what his partner has in her nose? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, my long-term partner has a, a big old ring in her nose, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I am looking forward to the day where there is a public apology, but I don't think it's <laughs> Well, I'll hold on to that one for a while. <laughs> but I do find it funny that now you're, like, interested in Burning Man. And, yeah, I think it's, like, maybe you're one that could go on the bus, too. But, maybe. yeah. Well, for for future plans. Okay. All right, Beth. Two things to finish this out. One, where can people find more about you? Oh, the best place would be LinkedIn. That would be my preference. So you can find me at Beth Young. And like Josh said, uh, I think probably Beth Young is one of the most original names out there. So you, you might have to do a little more investigation and you'll see Yellow Cat and Love Trades pop up in that space. And then, of course, on the yellowcat.us website, you can also find me there. Okay, excellent. All right. And so you know the next part of this one because you're a returning guest. You get to ask me one question to finish out this show. Okay, my one question is, how are you physically challenging yourself right now? Uh, today, I did 22 burpees when I woke up. Um, I just got done with a five-day fast, which kind of removed all of my physical exertion. And um, so yesterday, I did nothing physical. Today, I'm like, I got to do something. I have to get my heart rate up within about 30 minutes of waking up in order to have a great day. And I think um, Leslie Scharf, she was uh, a guest on this podcast. She asked me, she's like, what, give me like your next audacious goal that you haven't told anyone. And so I came up with, I wanted to run a 50 mile foot race by the time I'm 30. So that's in the back of my mind. Uh, <laughs> that I got to get some stuff straightened out physically before that happens in the next okay, three years. Cool. Yes. What okay, so the path to 50-mile foot race is 22 burpees after a five-day fast. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> my path. <laughs> All right, we have New Year's to watch this unfold as you prepare. That's exactly right. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. Well, I so appreciate the time that you're spending with me and thank you for asking me to participate in this. I love it. You're so welcome. You've been incredible in the development of myself as well as this podcast. So Beth, thank you very much for your time and attention. Thank you as well. <laughs>